Well, good afternoon and uh, welcome to you all to this lecture in the Ralph Miliband Lecture Series on the Future of Capitalism. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome our guest uh, this afternoon who will discuss his new book, also the title of Slavoj Zilek's uh, uh, lecture, First as Tragedy, Then as Farce on the Double Death of Neoliberalism. You're coming not just to an afternoon lecture, you won't need to worry about going to sleep, this will be an event. We've already been chatting for a few minutes and I discovered we have two things in common, none of them very reputable or desirable. We are both closet Stalinists and we enjoy Starbucks coffee. So <laughs> that's for the democratic discourse and radical politics. Okay. Uh, Slavoj is a philosopher, of course, and cultural critic of great renown. According to a recent profile in the New Yorker, and I love this, Slovenia has a reputation disproportionately large uh, for its size due to the work of this gentleman. He was born in 1949 in Ljubljana and was educated there and spent his early years there. He's had an extraordinarily productive, prolific, dazzling career. He's written over 50 books on topics ranging from philosophy to Freudian and Lacanian psychoanalysis to theology, film, opera, and radical politics. In addition, he's been a candidate for and nearly won the first president election for the independent Slovenia after the breakup of Yugoslavia in 1970. He currently holds many positions. Here's just a few. Professor at the European Graduate School, the international director of the Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities here in London, and a senior researcher at the Institute of Sociology, the University of Ljubljana. He has also, of course, been a visiting prof in many, many places. He's going to speak for about uh, 40 minutes. Uh, and then hopefully there will be time for questions, which will take in big clusters. But I should also say that this occasion marks the publication of his new book. After the lecture, it will be on sale outside that door. And uh, he has agreed to stay and sign books. So if you want to buy one of his books, then you'll be guided back around the lecture theatre here. And the author and champion and critic will sign for you. So please join with me in giving Slavoj a very warm welcome. Thank you very much. I'm really glad to be here, but not to lose time, because here you are my castrating superego figure, 40 minutes and so on. Uh, let me go directly to the point. Of course, this is like more in Kantian sense, a regulative idea. Maybe, I'm not so sure, it will have some link with this. What I want to focus on is simply my eternal topic, the way ideology functions today. Ideology and violence, maybe. Uh, how do we know that we are in ideology? And what do I mean by it? Uh, sorry, I hope this works. During, uh, during a public debate that I had with Bernard André Lévy at New York Public Library, he made a pathetic case for liberal tolerance. Something like, would you not like to live in a, in a society where you can make fun of the predominant religion without the fear of being killed for it? Where women are free to dress the way they like and choose a man they love and so on and so on. To which I replied with a similar pathetic case for communism. With the growing food crisis, ecological crisis and so on and so on, is there not a need to find a new way of collective action which radically differs from market as well as from state administration? 
The irony of this situation was, of course, that when the case is stated in these abstract terms, we both couldn't but agree with each other. What should I tell him? No, I want to live in a society where women are oppressed or whatever. What could he say? The irony was that Bernard André Lévy, the great neoliberal, not only this, but the very embodiment of how the ruling ideology reappropriated the legacy of 68, as it were. He told me, oh my God, if this is communism, I am a communist. This was a sign that something was wrong. What was wrong was that we both were knee-deep in ideology. Ideolo ideology is precisely that thick background noise on account of which, even if we explicitly agreed, effectively we did not agree. You know, like to say today I want women to be able to choose a man they love, blah, 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 you never say only this. There comes a package we did. How do you mean it? Do you mean this postmodern permissivity and so on? Or to say, in this sense, that I am for communism. Again, it can mean many things. It always means more. This background noise, I think, accounts for ideology. And be especially attentive when people, as it is fashionable today, uh, use terms like... Uh, cut the crap, cut the bullshit. Say, at that point, usually, you get ideology at its purest. For example, the very guy who is the ideologist of bullshit, uh, Harry Frankfurt, I, you know, like, critique of the jargon, blah, blah, all that, but a German journalist, maybe you know somewhere else, the only case I know is for a German philosophical journal, a journalist asked him, okay, give me one politician who is not bullshitting. You know whom he gave. John McCain. No, for me, not exactly. <laughs> what this background noise of ideology conveys is, more often than not, the obscenity of the barbarian violence which sustains the public law and order. This is why Walter Benjamin's thesis that every monument of civilization is a monument of barbarism has a precise impact on the very notion of being civilized. To be civilized means to know one is potentially barbarian. Every civilization which disavows its barbarian potential already capitulated to barbarism. This is how one should read the report about a weird confrontation in Vienna in 1938 when SS thugs entered Freud's, Sigmund Freud's apartment on Berggasse just to examine it. The old, dignified Freud, so people describe the scene, standing in front of a young SS bull. The idea was this is a metaphor of what was the best in old European culture. Freud confronting the worst of the new emerging barbarism. One should nonetheless add to the clarity of this image that the SS guy, perceived and legitimized himself as a defender of European culture and its spiritual values against the barbarism of modernity with its focus on economy and sex. The barbarism which for the Nazis was epitomized, uh, sorry, was epitomized by the name Freud. What this means is that, again, 
Benjamin's claim that every document of culture is at the same time a document of barbarism should be pushed a step further. What if culture itself is nothing but a halt, a break, a respite in the pursuit of barbarity? This perhaps is one of the ways to read Paul Celan's succinct paraphrase of Brecht. This is Paul Celan's poem. What times are these when a conversation is almost a crime because it includes so much implicitly told? And again, this is how ideology, ideology, the critique of ideology should proceed today. For example, because today ideology as a rule appears precisely as non-ideology. And you should detect it as the unspoken background. Not only if, if in the old days, in a more traditional functioning of ideology, you had the explicit ideological message, sacrifice, whatever, and then you got the obscene message between the lines. I claim fascists are masters in it. The official message is uh, sacrifice yourself, your country needs, and then the line between messages Pretend to do this and you can, I don't know, rape girls, kill the Jews, whatever, all the obscene payment that you get. Today, more and more, I think, and it's a much more dangerous strategy, it's the opposite one. You are directly addressed as hedonistic consumerist subject, but the price comes implicitly. And the irony is that this price is more and more explicitly state, stated, sold to you. Like what we are talking about Starbucks is precisely this semantic density, you know, as they bombard you again and again with the message buying a, a cup of Starbucks cappuccino, you are not just buying Starbucks cappuccino. You are uh, supporting the Guatemala farmers in their organic farming, helping Mother Earth to survive even in our societies. Like there is a whole sociological theory wild one. Once I saw an interview on CNN of the owner of Starbucks who appeared almost like, you know, Anthony Giddens from Seattle, <laughs> where he said, in our postmodern risk society and so on, he said this. He said, you know, these old places of collectivity, collective solidarity, town halls, parks, no longer operate, so Starbucks should also be an ersatz place of collective experience and so on and so on. I mean, they made you aware, at least maybe this is a good sign, that they made you aware of what you are buying on the site. Uh, it, this is getting more and more palpable today. For example, it's not only Starbucks, it's, you know, there is a company called, in the United States, Tom's Shoes, which was founded in 2006. Their idea is the following one. When you buy shoes, with every pair of shoes, this is why they are a little bit more expensive, they promise you to give one pair of shoes, again, to one of these proverbial starving children in Africa or whatever. So that you see the paradox. It's no longer, here I'm a consumerist, but then in the afternoon when I get a moral hangover or whatever, I should do something good for the star all this standard humanity. No, it's that. How should I put it? The scene, if you pay a little bit more for the scene, you can buy way of sinning. At the same time, buy your own redemption already. <laughs> you know, like, uh, you know, in your very consummation is included the price for uh, ecological, social, humanitarian, and so on, and so on, uh, redemption. Uh, this logic even reached its 
extreme point with recent, it was even a shock for me. In the United States, Pepsi-Cola started a new wave of publicity where, I will read it to you, I was shocked. Uh, Pepsi, that's their publicity. Pepsi has always been about refreshment. But what if instead of just refreshing people, Pepsi will help to refresh the world? If you've got an idea about how to make the world a better place, whether it's saving something, creating something, or fixing something, we want you to tell us about it. Then you vote to decide which idea are the best. And then, you know, Pepsi will give the money to whatever, an ecological cause, and so on. I find this so wonderful, so that you are even given the freedom of choice to decide about this surplus, which makes a commodity more than a commodity, and so on, and so on. This uh, ideological trend is based in what? In, again, ideology appearing as its opposite as non-ideology. What do I mean by this? I will give you just two extremely simple, clear examples. First, I hope you saw one of the two recent Israeli films about the 1982 Lebanon war. Ari Folman's animated documentary, Waltzbit Bashir, or Samuel Maoz's Lebanon. What both film movies are about a war, but they both enact a certain, how should I call it, reduction to the apolitical elementary experience of terror of being at war. For example, Lebanon, most of the movie takes place within an Israeli tank penetrating into Lebanon and it doesn't celebrate Israeli technological masters or whatever. No, it shows all the horror soldiers experience this as a meaningful nightmare, are terrified and so on and so on. But nonetheless, it may appear pacifistic good, but I think the price we pay is a total depoliticization of a society. You know, the moment you focus only on soldiers finding themselves in this absurd situation of killing and so on, questions like, but wait a minute, what were they doing there? It was a war of whom... All this somehow disappears. You get just pure non-ideological, as it were, uh, uh, human suffering. But so that you will not say that it's only this side, American, Israeli, that I attack. Let me take a similar example of very refined functioning of ideology from today's Cuba. I like detective novels, so I couldn't resist reading a couple of Cuban detective novels. He's a very good writer. You can get them now. They're printed here, so-called Havana Tetralogy of Havana Red, Havana Blue by Leonardo Padura Fuentes. Uh, it's uh, Fuentes, sorry. It's, uh, it's, they are police procedurals set in today's Havana. First, they are extremely critical of today's Cuban society. It's none of the idealism of uh, sacrificing for socialism. They show prostitution, exploitation, corruption of the nomenclatura, not misery, even more. The explicit topic of these novels is that, because of the communist adventure, the whole, the entire younger generation of today's Cuba is a lost generation, in the sense of things are happening politically, artistically, economically, they are in the void, they are, how should I put it, losing time, missing not the Stalinist train of history, this is only in our hearts, people didn't yet grow to that, but uh, simply missing what is going on today. 
So I thought, oh my God, I would like to meet this guy. I'm sure he has a nice villa in somewhere in Miami suburbs. <laughs> then I was told, no, he's very celebrated as their main export article. He, he lives in Cuba, he's fully recognized there. Not even this kind of a, you know, half dissident, like every second of your book is prohibited or whatever. And I think <laughs> I got the logic why. Because in a very perfidious way, the book works and his books as apologies for Cuba. His heroes, although disappointed, depressed, seeking refuge in alcohol and drinks, <coughs> uh, uh, fantasizing about alternate historical realities, mourning all the time their lost chances, and of course, they are all depoliticized. They ignore the official socialist ideology. But nonetheless, they fundamentally accept their situation. The idea is, as mature men, we shouldn't dream about Miami in all bitterness. We are citizens of this island. Here we should stay and make the best of the worst situation. This acceptance is the background of all critical remarks and dark descriptions. Although totally disillusioned, they are from here and here to stay. This misery is their world. They struggle to find a meaningful life within its coordinates. And I think this is why, again, it functions in a perfect way as ideology, precisely in depoliticizing the situation. So again, the main point is ideological gesture is this, how to put it, reduction to our core human identity outside or beneath, beyond ideology. You know, when I hear, to be a little bit tasteless in a metaphor, when I hear words like, but never forget that beneath all the ideological dreams, orientations, we are the same human beings sharing anxieties and so on. Well, my reaction is that Joseph Goebbels one, no? Show me this and I draw my gun. Why? <laughs> you know where you can see clearly the limit of this approach? And here, I don't do it in any kind of liber cheap liberal bashing, but even with a certain respect. Let's take the classical liberal conservative critics, interpreters, historians of Stalinism, uh, like uh, Robert Conquest and so on. You know what's my reproach to them? Not that they are too harsh, but that when they try implicitly, if not explicitly, to account for the mechanism of Stalinism, they are too soft. Uh, if you read this standard biographies, critics, don't you have this impression, at least this is my impression, that the only explanation they give is that official ideology was a total a total cynical instrument, nobody took it seriously, that if you, as it were, if you scratch the surface, you will discover an ordinary guy caring just for power, money, wealth, influence. In other words, ideology is just uh, not even a mask in the sense of appearance which seduces you, but just a cynical tool. Stalinists were really brutal people obsessed with they were brutal, but obsessed with power, power, and so on, humiliating, and so on. In other words, if you scratch the surface, you all of a sudden encounter this same nat na proto-natural liberal individual. You know where you can find this at its purest? I'm sorry if I repeat my example. I use it in another talk, but it's crucial. Did you see the movie which is resolutely anti-communist, Life of Others, Levin Anderen? 
the, the German one which got Oscar. Again, I claim this as a leftist, some kind of communist. My God, this movie is not hard enough, harsh enough. You know what's the story? To cut long story short, uh, top minister in ex-German Democratic Republic wants to screw a wife of a beautiful wife of a, of a theater writer, great uh, theater star of East Germany. So, to get rid of the competition, the husband, he orders the, the Stasi, the secret police, to control the guy and so on and so on. You know what's the problem with this theory? My God, what naive liberalism do we encounter here? The idea is that, don't they get it? And here I occasionally, not always, even agree with my not exactly political friend, Timothy Garten Ash. I met him two days ago, we totally agree that the, the guy with all his furious anti-communism didn't get it that in East Germany the way it was, a writer like that, big public figure, popular place and so on, performed in the West, he would have been covered totally by at least ten agents, even if there is no sleazy minister who wants to screw his wife. You know, in a typical liberal illusion, they have to look for this pathology. If something evil is happening, there must be some sleazy individual with one of these, as we put it, elementary human desires. You want women, you want power, or whatever. The, the true horror of GDR and other Stalinist country was, again, that even if... I, I, uh, I refer to the film now. Even if all of the secret police were to be, I wouldn't say honest, honest in their own terms, like just sincerely believing, doing their work, like the other hero of the film is, this half-honest Stasi guy, the hero of the film, exactly the same thing would have happened. You don't need, you don't need the bad minister with his pathological desire to have it all, uh, to to have it all started. So what are the consequences of this, how should I call it, move away from ideology which is in itself uh, part of ideology? Just uh, to return for a moment to Stalinism. What the problem I find, again, in these histories of Stalinism, to return to it, is that uh, they treat Stalinist politicians as if Beneath the official dogma, they disposed of another elementary, cynical, liberal, natural, utilitarian, egotistic, individual language, as if they knew what they were really doing. Trans but what if, no, the really horrible thing that you discover, uh, now that some of the Stalinist archives are partially open to the public at least, is that in private they spoke exactly the same language. It wasn't that in private they were cynics, they were cynics, brutal and so on, but still within, they didn't have another interpretive grid, another network to interpret what they were doing. They weren't cynics in this simple way. So where does this humanization of politics, nothing against humanism, but humanization in the sense of don't forget we are really warm human beings, bring us. In the middle of April of this year, 2009, precisely when they had in the United States uh, this so-called right-wing populist tea parties protesting uh, new taxes and so on, I was sitting in a hotel room in Syracuse, United States, and I was jumping between the two TV channels. 
A documentary on Pete Seeger, you know, the great American country singer, populist left, and, uh, of course, Fox News report on the anti-tax Tea Party in Austin, Texas. In this uh, uh, Republican Populist Tea Party, a country singer performed an anti-Obama populist song full of complaints on how Washington is taxing the hard-working ordinary people to finance the rich Wall Street, Wall Street bank executives, and so on and so on. And what shocked me, it was really an unpleasant surprise, is how similar the entire rhetorics was, because in the Pete Seeger show, they played some of his legendary songs, which basically were saying the same thing. Of course, not the same thing, but at least superficially. You know, we poor, hard-working people are exploited by the rich uh, bankers, and so on, and so on. This weird similarity between the two singers, both formulating an anti-establishment populist complaint against the exploitative rich, and calling for radical measures up to civil disobedience, is this not a painful reminder that with regard to the form of organization. Today's radical populist right strangely reminds us of the old populist left. Are today's Christian survivalist fundamentalist groups with their half-illegal status, which see these groups the main threat to their freedom in the oppressive state apparatus, are they not organized precisely like, for example, Black Panthers back in the 60s and so on? I'm not saying they are the same. What I'm saying is that this is for me another confirmation, again, of Walter Benjamin's thesis that behind every fascism there is a right-wing revolution. The true tragedy, especially of the United States, political tragedy for me, is that the populist right took over, put it very naively, in very naive energetic terms, the energy which was before invested into... The, the radical left. How did it do it? I think that one of the key points here is ideology, again, at its most elementary, which appears as non-ideology of uh, freedom of choice. This is, I think, again, why the present moment in the United States with all Obama's limitation is very important. The topic is ideology of free choice. That's the only really effective argument of the right. What's the situation here? We all know the old Marxist critique about how the multiplicity of choices the market bombards us with obfuscate the absence of real choices. Like we are given all the false choices, Coke or Pepsi, whatever, we are not given real choices. But I think something else is also happening which theorists of so-called risk society like Ulrich Beck uh, made it clear that there is also the opposite phenomenon. We are all the time bombarded with calls to make decisions in a situation which remains opaque, where we are not even superficially qualified or given enough data to make a decision. So what's for me, again, the problem here? Today, in the era of risk society, the ruling ideology tries to sell us the very insecurity caused, for example, by the dismantling of the welfare state as the opportunity for new freedoms. You have to change your job every year, relying on short-term contracts, 
Why not see it as the liberation from the constraints of a fixed job, as the chance to reinvent yourself again and again, to become aware of and realize hidden potentials of your personality? You can no longer rely on the standard health insurance and retirement plan so that you have to opt for additional coverage. Why not perceive it as an additional opportunity to choose, either between life now or long-term security? And if you nonetheless persist in your anxiety, then they tell you that, you know, you escape from freedom, you are immature, you are not ready to accept new freedoms, uh, uh, and so on, and so on. Here, I think, this will be the little bit of real Stalinism, I hope we all share it. Here, nonetheless, we can make some use, not in this dark Stalinist sense, of the opposition between formal freedom and actual freedom. By actual freedom, I don't mean, mean any of this Stalinist, uh, 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 Stalinist stuff. I simply mean the following, which has to be emphasized today again and again, I claim. The way we should answer the, those who advocate free choice is not by saying, no, no, there are some higher things we should limit our free choice. We should just make a simple observation. In our complex postmodern and so on societies, yes, free choices are extremely important, but are we aware and I will say something now very naive from our daily experience. Just think a little bit of what does it mean to be free. You can walk freely, buy freely, you can move freely, you can choose your job freely, whatever, all this. Are we aware of what an elaborate, let's call it symbolic and institutional substance network has to be here in order for us to effectively function as free individuals? I can walk freely on the street because I know that if somebody beats me, attacks me, I can, more or less, you never know, call the police, I rely on that. I can deal with others freely because I know that, at least within reasonable limits, I can expect that we all follow the same rules of politeness. You know that, like, we walk on the street by mistake, I hit you, no? I will just look at you and say, sorry, and you will say something like, oh, it's okay, it doesn't matter, we will not start shooting each other or whatever. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? That uh, freedom, precisely as individual freedom, takes a tremendous lot for granted in the form of this background. And for me, here we should demystify the freedom of choice. We should... The way these Republican defenders in the United States and elsewhere argue for the freedom of choice, they simply don't see that their actions undermine much of this invisible substance which then actually limits, constrains our freedom of choice. For example, when I was involved with some debates there in the States, I used a very demagogic argument which worked. I told them, listen, Compare healthcare, why not, with water and electricity. All three, health, water, electricity, are absolutely crucial for our lives. But concerning water and electricity, if you ask me, I renounce with great pleasure my freedom of choice to choose the water provider and so on and so on. I don't want to think about it. I just want to be relatively reliant and so on and so on. And I claim it's the same with Healthcare, okay, for the time being, before we Stalinists take over, okay, let the rich have their higher paid, but isn't part of not only elementary decency, 
egalitarian decency, that, that one of the things that we should still be proud to be from Europe. This basic idea that independently of status and so on, some, there should be some basic security for a decent life for all of us. Not only because of this, but even from the standpoint of freedom of choice. If you don't have to worry about, oh my God, do I have to have for half a million of pounds ready for a difficult operation? If you can at least basically be able to forget about illness, not in the sense of, I will not get it, but in the sense of, if it comes, I can at least basically rely on a network which is there. Can we even imagine how, how much more actual freedom of choice this gives us in actual lives. I mean, uh, can you imagine a life where you have all the freedom to what? To run all the day around looking for the doctor you can afford, looking for the water supply you can afford, <laughs> looking for electricity <laughs> provider. We simply should accept this. Now, do we have still take five, ten minutes? So, sure. concluding thoughts. Uh, uh, so, I'm often accused of this the problem of violence. Okay, I have some peculiar unorthodox opinions there. But I hope we can come to an agreement as to the basics. First, when we talk, because, yes, let me return to this point, uh, freedom of choice. This is an example of where I'm not afraid to use the term violence, but the violence I'm talking about, it's not the violence of killing others, imprisoning others, not even physical violence. It's something which is, in a way, psychologically very violent, but it's more, uh, how should I call it, a, a defensive gesture of inner transformation. What we should do is, how should I put it, the way, why are, unfortunately, uh, uh, referring to the last opinion polls, Republicans, by manipulating freedom of choice, even more or less, more and more, unfortunately, I hope it will not last, winning. They are mobilizing a certain rather complex mechanism of choice and social identification. You know that, uh, you know, these are wonderful psychoanalytic questions which we should, uh, and theories we should apply here, like when the question is to be asked apropos freedom of choice and so on, uh, not only what is the ideology you adopt, but as what do you identify yourself in adopting that ideology? I think it was already your own, 30 years ago, M Manchester, the beginning of cultural studies, guys, who made, apropos, when they analyzed Margaret Thatcher, a very nice discovery that uh, people do not identify when making ideological choices with what they are. They identify with an ideal of what they may become. It's always this possibility. And this is how, for example, Thatcherism works. You don't identify with what you are. You identify with the market luck around the corner or what. And this is how it works also. So again, here we need psychoanalysis. But furthermore, this identification, the way we dream, the way we perceive ourselves, this is maybe the harshest of all struggles. This is... An, I will quote an old liberal, he needs some reform here, uh, Sigmund Freud, who, you know, used that wonderful fragment from Virgil, uh, Eneida, at the beginning of uh, Traumdeutung, like, Acheronta Movebo, if you can't move the earth, move the underground. 
By underground, I mean the underground of uh, dreams, fantasies, identifications, and so on. This is the struggle today. Even if, it, even if the healthcare reform fails in the United States, I'm tempted to say if the result will be that we should see the limitations of this pure rational choice, sorry, pure freedom of choice theory, not the limitation in some communitarian sense, no, we need more social discipline, but the limitation in the sense that by the way it actually functions, it effectively limits our actual freedoms, it, the struggle will be worth of it. So my final metaphor, I read recently a wonderful novel, which I think applies to us today perfectly. It's the uh, uh, Albanian writer, Ismail Kadare, The Palace of Dreams. It's the story which takes place in an unnamed East European Oriental Empire, basically Turkey, in the 19th century, where the central ministry of this state is Tabir Serai, The Palace of Dreams. The idea is that they collect dreams from the entire empire and interpret them to read the future of the nation and so on. There is thousands of bureaucrats doing these jobs, immense political struggles involved in it. Why? Here are just a couple of lines from the book. In my opinion, Kurt went on. Kurt is one of the heroes of the novel. It is the only organization in the state, this Ministry of Dreams, where the darker side of its subjects, consciousness, enters into direct contact with the state itself. The masses don't rule, but they do possess mechanism through which they influence all the state's affairs, including its crimes. And that mechanism is the Tabir Serai. Do you mean to say, asked the cousin, another guy in this conversation in the novel, that the masses are to a certain point responsible for everything that happens and so should to a certain extent feel guilty about it? Yes, said Kurt. In a way, yes. I think the topic here is, if you, of course, abstract from this mythic uh, content, is simply that uh, when we are subject to power, as we learn from wonderful theorists like the old good uh, treatise on servitude volontaire by La Boétie, you know, we are always, we want it or not, invested in power. When we obey power, it's never simple Oppression. Even when oppression seems pure, look for dark investments, for precisely obscure dreams, this link, and there we should attack. For example, I was always shocked, back to Stalinism, obviously you can say I have strange fixations there. Uh, you know what shocked me? To what extent even all those who had, who had nothing but, but hatred for Stalinism, if you look at the, I'm speaking now mostly about poets, composers, and so on, had, if you look at their most intimate notes, a strange fixation, respect, and so on. You know, for example, there is a wonderful anecdote about Sostakovich. Stalin called him once, you know, the phone rang high, Stalin here. Sostakovich first didn't believe, and then asked him, what do you say about, think about Mandelstam? Should we arrest him or not? Then uh, Sostakovich squeezed out and then asked Stalin, can I talk with you? Stalin said, why? Shostakovich said, I would like to talk with you about life, death and similar things. All of a sudden you can see Shostakovich hated Stalin, but this idea, this absolute figure of power, just must have some inner wisdom, some kind of insight into ultimate things. You see, they were already caught in that dream. 
The same goes for practically all of them, for Mandel, Mandelstam himself, for Meyerhold, uh, um, for Bulgakov, and so on and so on, who has a, had a similar conversation with Stalin. This is, I think, the most difficult thing to do. Uh, it is uh, something which can be psychologically very violent. Now I will give you a brutal metaphor. Did you see, it's a little bit too Stalinist epic, but it has its nice moments, Bertolucci's, uh, this big movie, 1900, 20th century. Uh, some approximately half an hour into the movie, there is a scene which shocked me. Uh, there is a confrontation between the striking poor farmers on strike and their landowner who, in very reasonable economic terms, explains to them how, because of the, like today, because of the financial crisis, market drop and so on, you should accept only half the wages. He reasons with them. And the farmers say, sorry, we starve, we don't accept it. Then the owner starts to shout at the, mar at the farmers. But are you stu so stupid? Don't you have ears to listen to me? And then comes the wonderful moment. That's the violence I advocate. Not literally, but you will see the point. One of the farmers steps forward, takes out a knife, a kind of a curved knife, and cuts off his own ear and says, now, here you have it. Like talking about our ears. The message is the right one. The message is, no, we are stepping. It's a kind of a very... Unfortunately, anti-Habermasian almost message. But I think in a deeper sense, maybe it is Habermasian. It is that, in a way, you know, it's the gesture of withdrawal. It's not this fascist gesture, I don't talk with you. But it's, no, I, I give you my ear, I don't talk at that level. You have to step out of that. And this is, there is, there is a violence in this. And this violence, this is what I would have called ironically, the, the violence of Gandhi, Gandhian violence. This is why I wrote, and that famous, to, to shock my friends, I like to do this, the famous <laughs> statement for which I was accused for I don't know what, that Hitler wasn't violent enough. My American publisher got a heart attack. Picano. They called me, what do you, are you saying he should kill all of us Jews, that it wasn't enough, half, and so on. No, my message is that Hitler was a coward. All his violence was, in the strict Nietzschean sense, uh, reactive violence. He did all these things because, to cut a long story short, here I remain an old-fashioned leftist, because he wanted, basically, the society function the way it is. Uh, you know, he changed many things so that the fundamentals were not changed. While Gandhi, with all his non-violence, he did something pretty brutal in a good sense. He really wanted to stop with his protest and so on the entire functioning of the British state in India. He didn't just talk with them. At a symbolic level he did precisely to all those British liberals, but listen, the situation is complex. Let's talk. Basically Gandhi, Gandhi did, did this. So I think that this is how Maybe you will agree, I would be interested, uh, maybe not. <coughs> On the one hand, I am for, how should I put it, for this type of violence. Not, it's not a question of physical violence. The question is nonetheless of accepting that, as my friend Alain Badiou would have put it, I often disagree with him, but here I do, uh, that, uh, you know, unfortunately in politics there are real enemies. 
politics is not a domain where we will all just be friends and so on and so on. And why I'm saying this? Because I claim that a politics which wants to be purely dialogic, no enemies, ends up as sooner or later advocating even worse violence. Because if you say, no, we should all be in a dialogue, blah, blah, then those who don't fit the coordinates of your dialogue are not even, ad uh, are not even acknowledged as legitimate enemies, but are those homo sacer for Agamben, uh, dispossessed, and so on, and so on. The second thing I want to say, just to conclude now, really, like physically I prove it to you, two, three pages, is that paradoxically, this, and I like this conclusion, this need for violence, but violence in this sense of, it's more, how should I call it, the interrupting violence, should be combined, I think, with, uh, with uh, let's call it, with, uh, may sound strange to you what I will say, with a need for new civility. I claim that, and here again, I agree with what some of all those risk theorists are saying, you know, today's society, we have to reinvent the rules, we cannot simply rely on old customs to tell us, and so on, but the only way to avoid war in such a situation is to rely on something which may appear modest, on what I'm tempted to call some elementary rules of civility. Civility is, are not customs. Civility is what you need. Let's say you are from where you are, I am from where I am. I admit it. I am Balkan, ethnic, and all that. That's okay. But how do we talk? We don't share some traditional customs. The only thing that prevents us shooting each other is elementary civility. And I mean this in a very serious sense. There were times, 60s, revolution, hippies, all that, where we thought those in power stand for this fake dignity, rigid manners, politeness, so it is something subversive if you use dirty words or whatever. I think that Berlusconi is our future, in the sense that today those in power, for reasons I don't have time to develop now, are getting more and more obscene, undermining their own authority. So perhaps, just perhaps, it's time for the left radicals to become the partisans of simple civility. And I mean this even in a slightly conservative sense to provoke you with art. Then I remember, concluding, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, a couple of years ago there was in New York a big exhibition, Andrew Serrano photographs, where maybe you, you remember the scandal. The guy uh, presented some statue of Jesus Christ in, in urine and so on. And he was attacked by conservatives. Then, uh, then some these permissive liberals counterattacked him, claiming, but you shouldn't read this as a simple provocation. That by displaying Christ in urine, the, the, the artist wants to make you think, reflect on what is the basis of your feeling of disgust. How do we relate to, inner, to the inner of our body and so on and so on. You know what's the problem for me with this? Is that it works all too well. Let me give you, to conclude in my style, an extremely vulgar example, which I will never do. Uh, let me imagine myself shooting, making a video shot of myself shooting. You see everything. How 
the sheet comes gradually out, my satisfied smile, ah, uh, it's finally out. And then people attack me, vulgarity. What if I say then exactly the same words? It may seem a provocation, but I'm just questioning the very presuppositions of our feeling disgust. I'm subverting the limit inside, outside. It's not as simple as that. That's what I'm claiming. I'm getting slowly more respectful towards this much despised ordinary people and so on and so on. So again, now really half a minute to conclude with violence. For me, and this is an old even feminist lesson. What was, now that you will see that I did my theoretical homework, I'm well aware and I respect it of the finesse of Hannah Arendt's distinctions between authority, power, and violence. He makes very nice points of how violence is not authority. Violence is the explosion of the impotent ones, and so on. But I claim where maybe she doesn't go far enough is to see how, often or even as a rule, what appears as legitimate authority is sustained secretly by some kind of obscene violence. And that's our task today. This is what, with all my people claim anti-feminist bad taste jokes, one thing has to be admitted. The great achievement, theoretical result even, of feminism of the 60s, this big era and 70s, was to teach us how to perceive as violent what appeared as natural traditional authority. You know, this elementary insight, no, when woman obeys a man, it's not natural authority. This appearance of natural authority is generated by some very brutal, to use the Michel Foucault term, micro-practices or whatever. This is why I put so much emphasis on violence. Not that I uh, 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 am fascinated by violence, but that I claim maybe the task, one of the great tasks today of critique, even honest self-critique of liberalism, is to teach us to see violence, to rediscover violence when violence generates its own self-erasure. There, I think, we can easily find common language, even with two such strange... Maybe even the two of us will discover that we don't only love Stalin, that we love some other things. Thanks very much for your patience. And again, I, I read your book on democracy, and I must clarify here, when I problematize democracy, again, it's not who, 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 a new Leninist Central Committee, what I like is how you break the confines of simply multi-party democracy and look at all different forms, without, that's what I like about your work, without the usual operation of privileging another, usually more, Primordial for like when I was in China, they told me we discovered that your Western democracy is meaningless. We discovered what is true democracy. We call it deliberative democracy. Like the idea is we should really debate things. In then the I asked them a simple question. I totally agree, but who decides then? It's ah, they became evasive. Right. Then. <laughs> the important thing is that we debate. So I like this. We should really do this. Otherwise, I think it will be very difficult to avoid new authoritarianism, very soft one, but no less dangerous that I see this, how should I put it, decisions of the people, by the people, blah, blah, but which step outside the bounds of this standard 
democracy. Well, Slavia's books will be on sale outside that door. My oh books my will be out oh sale on that door. <laughs> you see, this is right I am a noble intellectual <laughs> creature. This is the... Are you... To go to the end in my day... Are you Jewish by any chance? Pass. You know one Secular. Secular. Secular Jew. Secular Jew, that's the worst. This means... <laughs> this means you don't care about God, you care only about money and this. <laughs> <laughs> you see... Uh, this is my, you know, this usual racist Sorry about the defense. questions, guys. Sorry, yeah. There'll be no questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's interruption or civility. Yeah, yeah. No, but I, I mean... And our speaker is defining civility as non-interruption. Carry on. <laughs> okay, uh, I will bow down you to do. your brutal phallogocentric... <laughs> Please. Well, we've almost run out of time. I will just take... You have to keep your questions really short. We're going to get lots of questions, and then you can finish the event by eventing and free associating on the questions. Right, so don't... We'll give you this Buddhist bullshit. Them. Clap with one hand. This don't... Uh, yes. if, if you like the lecture, you know, we, we, we come on. Okay, very brief. Um, yeah, I have a question about... Um, so is newfound LSE-compatible Kantian liberalism. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm I wasn't at that lecture. <laughs> no, I, well, I mean, uh, if, if, you're, if the strategies that you're advocating is some kind of civ civility, um, moral, mor moral behavior, and we have... We have Lenin we have communism like as this, a, as not a, Kantian. As this a, is permanent motive in Lenin. Yeah, is it? From early Lenin till in the last writings against Stalin, read what Lenin wrote about. It wasn't just Stalin itself. He emphasized again and again, civility, politeness is the central question. Interruption. Interruption. Yeah, we no, got you. Him ask you the question, no, no, my question. Interest. But to move from, from okay, from, from ideologie critique, very important, and so to move to uh, a strategy a, a strategic formulation or articulation of, of let's say, intervention, organization for a democratic communism. What, what, what would be, what, what is the, what is the prospect? What is the prospect? What is your, your standing on, on here? I on answer. Okay, that's the question. We're gonna, I'll take two or three, so then you can answer them all at the end because we're going to run. Lots of people have classes to go to. I want you to get a few points of view, Mary Calder, there. We have someone up there. Yes, Very you short can question: Is cutting off your ear an act of civility? Ah, don't answer, don't answer. <laughs> yes. Hi, I know I'm supposed to be brief, but I'll try my best to be as brief you as possible. You have to be. Um, um, again, going back to the lady, what she said, but my one is in a bit different tangent. You said about Gandhian violence, and also my referral point would be the civil rights movement and also the liberation of India. Don't you think that with the proposition of mythic violence, there is always the position of the ruling class, which always has that particular allowance ground? It can give the symbolic positions, allow the symbolic positions like giving liberation to India or like, yeah. you know, some symbolic changes within the um, civil rights movement, but go on with their um, ruling ideology nonetheless. Uh, you talked about uh, formal freedom and actual freedom. My question is, in today's world, if uh, the actual freedom is just a utopia or if it is uh, really achievable? Okay, gentle guy at the top. Yeah. Uh, with regards to psychoanalysis, do you believe that the current catering to our desires has uh, resulted in people being uh, less, uh, pursuing their drives to eros and tarados less? 
Okay, and I'll ask you no, just one question. I'll ask you just one question. Is it, do you see yourself actually as anti-Habamasian? In, in, in the last 10, 15 minutes, you could easily be thought to be. But isn't Habamas's view is when dialogue breaks down, dialogue breaks down, and then you're in a non-discursive situation where anything is possible, in other words, forms of violence. But the point of dialogue is once you enter a dialogue, it raises inherently the possibility that you might come to an understanding. Because if you didn't make that presupposition about dialogue, it would fragment you wouldn't go on. You wouldn't go on because you wouldn't think you could engage the other. But when violence, when language breaks down and dialogue is finished, and that is your point, then the game is entirely different. So is that anti-Habermasian? I'm not sure. No, but okay. you think it is. I will try to be right. as short now, as we've possible. We've only got five minutes because of classes, I'm afraid, and the books will be signed and then you'll come oh back God, and get a think. unique signature <laughs> in, in years to come. Yeah, I met him. It's a nice point. What I... Find, I will start with you, missing in Habermas is a precise theory. It can be theorized of, no, it's not simply that the dialogue breaks down. If we have something to learn from psychoanalysis and politics, is that often withdrawing, breaking down the dialogue is ideally can, is often even the, the only way to create the conditions maybe for a true dialogue. Okay. Like, it's the, Sorry to contradict myself, the, the cut the crap, cut the bullshit move, <laughs> where then you open the space. And the same I would say for civility. You know, I'm not civility and cutting the ear. You know that you can also be, here the analysis becomes more complex, you can also follow civility in a very brutal, insensitive way. Civility can also be the tool of this kind of a brutal code keeping the distance. You know this proverbial scene of a poor guy comes to you all in blood, beaten, demands help, and say, can you please behave more, more nicely and whatever. In this sense, yes, absolutely, I accept the paradox. Cutting the, cutting, cutting the ear can absolutely, without any problem, function as an act of civility, even more. It can, and that's crucial. Not in some stupid dialectical way, but let's say, just an example, you are bullshitting. <laughs> no, you are not, I am, but I, when I do this, basically what I'm saying is, beneath your appearance of civility, you are basically extremely brutal and ignorant. Uh, no, don't take it personally. Even when I send you, even when I will send you I've, I've to Gulag, I've heard it before. Me. Yeah, okay, let's go on. So, uh, the others, yes, mythic violence, India, and so on. I would only say that I don't think what Gandhi was doing can, it was later recuperated to use Benjamin in mythic violence, but what I was struggling for through all these violent reflections was, you know, the counterpoint of Benjamin, divine violence. I think we should look maybe in Gandhi, one of the aspects of, uh, of, uh, of violence. As to that stuff about desires, eros, thanatos, and so on. Well, desires are not fixed for me. The, the psychoanalysis that I advocate, it's not, you know, make a trip to your inner, listen to your desires. No, we should be ruthless with our desires. I'm even ready to go as far, in a slightly Stalinist mode, and to say we have wrong and correct desires. You should be a ruthless censor of your desires. This is for me at least the lesson of, uh, the lesson of Freud. And there were two of uh, The first one, uh, what would have been democratic communism and so on and so on. I don't like to bluff here. 
I don't have a clear vision. All I'm simply saying is that because of ecological crisis, uh, new forms of apartheid, biogenetics, and so on, we are approaching a stage where the standard models of collective or individual activity, market, charity, state interventions, will not do the job. We have to, the struggle is, that's why I cling to the crazy word communism, the struggles today for ecology, for uh, even in biogenetics and so on, are here and only here, I agree with Negri and Hart, are the struggles for commons. Now we are in a new process of enclosing the commons. And here something will have to be invented. Maybe it will not be. Maybe there is shit ahead of us. I'm here, not the traditional Marxist, I hope we also share. Unfortunately, there is no train of history and we just have to jump on it and progress is here. There is no guarantee. We will have to act. Sorry, one question I missed after divine violence and before desire something about freedom, my God. I can the guy do it very briefly again? Ask free freedom. I'm very sorry. One, please say it. One of you did, didn't did, get Did anybody it. feel that question was not addressed? If so, repeat it. Was it you? You? Yeah. 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 I asked uh, if that actual freedom is just an utopia or it is achievable in today's world. Ah, okay. My standard, here I remain a standard leftist. Uh, the true utopia is that what goes on now can go on now. We live in a utopia. If there is a lesson from this ongoing financial crisis is that the end of utopias was not, as the official story goes, 1990 and then the realism. No, the true utopia were the 1990s. After the, the greatest utopian is Fukuyama, who thought we have the answer. For me, the meaning of all these shitty events from September 11th to financial uh, uh, meltdown is that, unfortunately, that, by that I mean the standard liberal democratic capitalism, is not the answer. The true, the true utopia is that, as to actual freedom. Of course it's possible, but don't mystify it. Here, we don't have time, I will stop in 10 seconds, here you will get the darker side of me. I think that part of this new freedom will have to be also, of course not terroristic in the sense of imposed by state, but a new sense of solidarity, discipline, and so on. This is why often I ironically define myself as left-wing fascist. In the sense of there are values like discipline, collective spirit, sacrifice. My God, why should we automatically leave this to the enemies, you know, as if, if you mention uh, collective action, discipline, struggle, who neo-fascist. No, we should take all that over. Well, listen, yeah.